I think it's safe to say it takes most people a while to find their purpose in life. Most young adults are still working that out, and some never do. But Julie Mabry figured it all out back in high school. I always wanted to own my own lesbian bar since I was 16 years old. Today, Julie is the owner of Pearl Bar in Houston, Texas. At 16, in the early 90s, Julie was just a closeted kid growing up in San Antonio. But she did have one thing going for her. My name is Sarah Mabry. Uh, My pronouns are she, her. Um, And I'm Julie Mabry's sister. My sister's gay also, and she's three years older than me. Everyone wants to be like their older sister at one point or another, right? I think my mom thought I was probably just trying to be like my sister at the time. She literally was like, I think you're just trying to be like Sarah. But this was no act. Julie was capital G gay. Uh, well, I just had crushes on all her friends because they were a little bit older. But I had crushes on her little her, her friends. As teenagers, she would tag along with Sarah and her alluring older friends. So I'd started meeting lesbians and I met lesbians through my sister. So that's how I made, I made friends. In the gay community. And we would go to like this park called Almost Park, and that's how I made friends there. And then we would go to the club, and I'd make friends there. But basically, throughout their entire childhood, Sarah was struggling. I hated high school. Like, there's no happy memories. I don't go to any of my reunions because there was probably like three gay people in my school, and everybody else was like into football and cheerleading. Like, I had my hair shaved, I was in a mohawk, you know, I dressed kind of punk rock, and I wasn't like a normal girl. I dressed like a boy. And so going into a new school like that as a freshman, I was called a dyke all the time. And I was bullied and it was torture. So Sarah would often skip school. The main thing I skipped was uh, I would skip PE because I hate dressing out in the locker room with the other girls because I didn't feel like like my body was more mature, very much a woman. And I didn't identify with that. Like I, I had a very feminine body and I and I didn't identify with that. So early on I, in high school, I got in trouble a lot for skipping school. And my mom was like, why are you missing PE all the time? And I was like, because I don't like dressing out in the dressing room with the girls. It wasn't just about dressing differently or being the gay kid. Sarah was grappling with her gender identity in a way she didn't even understand at the time. If I was 14, 15 today, I would clearly transition. I didn't know that's what I was going through. And my mom didn't know. She didn't understand. Today, she understands. You know, like when we talk about today, she's she's very pro. But back then, it was a mental illness. Sarah was going through all of this throughout the 80s and 90s, back when there wasn't widely used language for things like gender fluidity. Here's Julie again. We didn't have those options, at least, you know, easily accessible In the early 90s and 2000s, you know, it wasn't as accessible as it is now. So that's also something else that I watched her struggle with was her identity. So what did the Mabry sisters do? They immersed themselves in the local queer community and they partied. When I was about 16 and she was 19, we had gone to this gay bar called The Bonham in San Antonio. You could be 18 to get in, so I had a fake ID that said I was 18, and um, now I wish I still had that ID. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, we were underage. <laughs> I know, I know, and I think it's mainly because I'm maybe I was babysitting her, or she was babysitting me. I don't know which way it went. A lot of times, she had to babysit me, and maybe that's why I brought her with me. 
This was their first time going to a gay bar together. As soon as you walk in, it's like, like, like you exhale and just like, now I don't have to worry about whose hand I'm holding. I don't have to worry about saying she, it was just, now you could be who you are. You're in a safe space. I saw people that were like me, that were being who they were, and it just made me feel comfortable. Sarah didn't know it at the time, but Julie was watching her every move. So as soon as we walked in, it was almost like she was just like in a whole new world. Like she was happy, dancing, socializing. It was the first time that I saw my sister like really come out of her shell, like become a a human really is how I saw it, like happy and was her true self. She was very reclusive. She, you know, like had just very specific friends at that time. And then when we were in the bottom, I mean, like everyone was her friends. It was family, which is what a bar in our in our community is the importance of is like a house, a home for people and a family. After that night at 16 years old, Julie knew what she was going to do with the rest of her life. I became obsessed with wanting to open a lesbian bar. And so from that time, like, I I just never forgot how she felt when she walked in. It was like that was her safe haven. I mean, you know how it is when you walk into a a gay bar, queer bar, lesbian bar. It's it's like you, you, you found your home. So that's how I felt, too. This is Cruising podcast about the last lesbian bars in the U.S. My name is Sarah Gabrielli, and I'm traveling to each one of them with my two friends and chosen family. This is stop number 16, Pearl Bar. Let me tell you a little bit more about Julie Mabry. Yes, she did accomplish her childhood dream as she is now owner of the Houston lesbian bar, Pearl Bar. Julie has long blonde hair, almost always pulled into a messy bun, thinly tweezed eyebrows, and at least upon first impressions, she seems pretty serious and no-nonsense. And about her interview tape, we only had a small window of time to talk to her. We thought we'd found a quietish spot, but were immediately bombarded by some cicadas. I've dialed it down as much as I can, but that's the faint buzzing you're hearing on her tape. Anyway, Julie's been in the Houston area since the late 90s. She moved after high school. If you're not from Texas, you might be picturing the entire state as politically conservative or homophobic. But Houston, and some of the other big cities, are different. Houston is an amazing, amazing, I think we have the fourth largest pride parade. Um, I think we have like 800,000 attendees, but Houston's a great city in the sense for gay people and queer people. And our community is amazing. We had a lesbian mayor and she was the first openly gay mayor of a major city. Julie's talking about Anise Parker, who served as the 61st mayor of Houston from 2010 until 2016. 
History made in Houston as the city elects its first openly gay mayor. City controller Anise Parker won yesterday's runoff with 53.6 percent of the vote, besting her challenger, former city attorney Jean Locke. Believe me, the party is just getting started. They've got barricades out here ready to block off Pacific Street for a big block party. Right now, dozens of Parker supporters are making their way through the fog and into bars to watch returns. This election has changed the world for the gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgendered community. So we've always been a blue city. You know, we're very democratic in Houston. By the time Julie moved there at 18, she was already relatively familiar with the area. We would come to Houston because my grandparents lived in Texas City, which is near here. And we had a huge gay area, which is Montrose. So with Houston, I became very attached to the community. Julie spent a number of years after high school hustling, as she would say. First, she tried community college. I went to like a semester and I don't think I finished the semester of business class and stuff like that. Like I went to basics in college, but that just really wasn't my calling. And then I just worked in the service industry. I either waited tables, um, bartended. You know, I mean, I worked a little bit in real estate and a little bit in the stock market. But for the majority of the time, it was in the service industry. And Julie was often working and patronizing the local gay bars. And I would just go in there and watch the the customers and like what they drank, like what, what their per person average was is what it is. is like to watch whether they drink beer, what kind of liquor they drank, what music they listened to. I just watched everything and learned a lot about the lesbian clientele, per se. In the early 2000s, Julie started promoting lesbian parties around the city. She'd bring in queer performers and live music, lesbian DJs, and even cast members from The L Word. Eventually, Julie ended up bartending at a spot called Little J's. It was on Washington Ave, a few miles north of the Montrose neighborhood. Little J's was right next door to another bar called Pearl Bar. Pearl wasn't explicitly a gay bar, but it was definitely gay-friendly. Pearl Bar was known for a lot of gay people that came over here to this bar, which a lot of times, because we have such a great gay neighborhood, a lot of people didn't like go outside of that area. But Pearl had a good reputation for the gay community. Shortly before Julie started working next door, Pearl Bar was evicted, so the space sat empty. It was the same landlord for both bars, so every time she came by Little Jay's to collect rent, Julie would stop her to ask about Pearl. I would always beg the landlord to let me rent this bar because I was, at that time, I was seriously looking for my own bar, and eventually the landlord came over and told me I could rent it. In homage to the previous Pearl bar, Julie decided to keep the name. You know, it already had a great reputation in the gay community, and it just kind of fit, and it's stuck. On October 12th, 2013, Pearl Bar, as we know it today, oh, okay, was born. Okay. Well, we have games, as if lesbians don't play enough of them. And we have, like, our Halloween decorations. We have picnic tables, lawn furniture, some rainbow seating, little rainbow chairs. She's talking about their huge outdoor patio. There are big, leafy plants, colorful decorations, string lights, lawn games... Picture a beer garden, but with tiki lounge vibes. We have a neon sign that says, I licked it, so it's mine. And that's where a lot of people like to go take their pictures. And then we have like little 
Connect Four games, some U-Haul signs. Every bar needs one of those. And some little U-Haul trucks. And our Pearl Bar sign. Thursday at Pearl Bar is steak night. And beyond burger night for the vegetarians. Julie acts as grill master for steak night. And that's the night we were in town. Steak nights are popular. We're in Texas, you know. Um, and I always like to cook aside from inside my house. And we just started doing a steak night. And it's we set up the grill. We get the steaks. I bake like 50 to 80 potatoes and, you know, grill. We arrived early, right at opening. And Julie was already busy prepping running to the store to pick up last-minute supplies, getting the grill fired up. Sometimes people's perception might be a little off for me during state night, but that's typical of every night, really. But yeah, it's a lot of work. She kind of has a point. From our few interactions with her in passing, it wasn't clear if she would have time to talk with us, or if she even wanted to. Honestly, I'm not a very sociable person. I'm not. I mean, I've turned into that old lesbian with a dog and two cats. But Julie sells herself short. Once the grill was lit and the trays of baked potatoes set out, she let us steal her away. Thursdays are just hectic for her. It's as simple as that. Typically, we get pretty busy for steak night, and then we have dildo races at 10 p.m., and then we have a DJ at 10.30, and that's what we're going to be doing tonight. You're probably wondering what the heck a dildo race is. And we were, too. At Pearl Bar, it's a steak night tradition. All right, let's see who wins this first round. Three, two, one, five. A sheet of corrugated metal is leaned against the stage inside, forming a slanted racetrack. Then racers choose a vibrating dildo, place them at the top of the track, and switch them on. Whichever dildo gets to the bottom of the track first wins. All right, David! As you can imagine, Julie can't run Thursday nights on her own. Okay, um, my name is Paige Caceres, uh, and I am just kind of like, I do a little bit of everything. Uh, I help Julie with steak night. I help with the dildo races. Sometimes I'm helping at the front door. Sometimes I'm helping on the floor. Just kind of helping wherever I can, really. Paige is somewhat of a contract worker at Pearl Bar. When Julie has a need, Paige will fill it. Yes, Julie and I have been friends for a really long time. She's always been there for me, and so I'm just kind of here, you know, whenever she needs me. Paige met Julie about five years ago when she first visited Pearl Bar. A friend of mine told me about this place. I never really went out like this direction before that, and she uh, told me about this really cool bar, lesbian bar, uh, that I and I'd never really heard of a lesbian bar specifically for lesbians before that. And so I came here and I really loved the vibe. Paige grew up in a suburb outside of Houston. And while she didn't know it at the time, looking back, there were some early signs that she was gay. So I remember when I was younger, I would say probably like 11 or 12 years old. My older sister had one of her friends over. And I remember like when I heard she was coming over, for some reason, I like went upstairs and changed my clothes really quick and like tried to do my hair and like tried to put on the little makeup of hers that I had like taken real quick, you know, but I didn't understand why I was doing that. I thought I was just excited for her to come over. And then um, 
one day we were driving in the car and I think my uncle or something pointed out somebody had a rainbow sticker on their car. And I remember like pushing myself up against the window, like maybe they'll notice me. But like I didn't really understand why then. It wasn't until years later that she finally understood the why behind these feelings. And so then once I was in high school and I really started to like realize what was missing in my life or what I was what I felt was not there, like then I realized, oh, okay, you like women and these this is why you were doing those things and why you've always had an attraction towards them, you know? She started to come out to close friends in tenth grade. But much of her family didn't find out until after she graduated high school. That's when everything kind of, I say blew up for lack of better words. That's where when everything kind of went down. I grew up in a very religious home. Um, a lot of my family wasn't very welcoming to the fact that I was a lesbian. And when I came out, they all, I, they all kind of like turned their backs on me. Around this same time, Paige found out she was pregnant. I was eight when I had her, about to be 19. I was pretty young. The circumstances around Paige's pregnancy are pretty serious and private. So, yes, I was identifying as a lesbian. I was actually, it's kind of like a not-so-great story that turned out to be a blessing. So it's not just like something that I like to announce. I just can say this, though. Um, it was something that happened uh, when... I was at my girlfriend's house at the time and her older brother was having a party. And it was just, like I said, it was a bad situation. But at this point, Paige has enough perspective to know that this incident was a blessing in disguise. You know, I don't regret it because I have the most important person in the world to me. Like, I have her and I, would, I wouldn't change anything because I don't want her to change, you know. Today, Paige and her daughter, Kaden, are incredibly close. She's 13. She's, she's getting up there, but she's my best friend. She really is, so I'm very lucky to have her. Paige has always been open with Kaden about being gay. I've never hid that from her. I mean, the thing that we always say to each other is just we tell each other everything. You know, I'm very open and honest with her. Even though it was sometimes hard to navigate with her extended family being so religious and disapproving. The family members of mine that she was around, a lot of them were not welcome, like welcoming to that. So they would say, you know, one thing and, and tell her stuff like, well, you know, your mom's not going to go to heaven or, you know, like try and bring religion into it. So it was kind of hard to like explain that to her now. But Kaden's her own person now with her own priorities. And she doesn't care about that sort of thing. All she cares about is that I'm happy and that she's happy. And as long as she's involved and she is very much so involved in that aspect, like, that's one of my things. Like, if you can't accept that I have a child and that we're going to do things, all three of us, then I have no room for you in my life. <laughs> As a single mom, Paige was never really a regular at Pearl Bar, even after that first visit when she fell in love with the place. Going out a lot isn't really on my agenda, but if I did go out, like, this would be the place that I would come. But that just kind of shows you, like, the kind of people that work here like you're not just here drinking one night like people here like we we get to know the customers and we're friends with customers Paige didn't need to come to the bar every night to form meaningful relationships 
you know, Julie, I, I came here maybe once every couple of weeks and we became friends that way, you know, and the door guy, Antonio, him and I had also really connected. He's one of my best friends now. Antonio is the one that first got Paige a job at Pearl Bar a few years ago. And he just called me up one night and was like, hey, we're really in a situation. Do you think you could come and help me at the door? And I was like, yeah, sure. I wasn't doing anything that night. My daughter happened to be at a sleepover. So I just came here and Julie explained to me, you know, what we what they do at, in that specific spot. And it kind of just stuck from there. Like anytime they really needed help, like they just called me. And so I started coming in and learning the different places in the bar and how things run. And it just kind of went from there. They realized that I could help in different spots. And that's what I do. Currently, Paige works at Pearl Bar Thursday through Sunday, and that's on top of her day job. I am a a dental hygienist, so I work at a dentist's office Monday through Thursday from 8 to 5. Paige doesn't always work this many hours a week, but sometimes she needs to get ahead on her finances. Of course, I would love to be home and stuff like that, but right now it works better for me personally. If if I'm doing this, it kind of helps me and my daughter out. She has a lot of stuff coming up and birthdays and Christmas and her swim team, you know, they're back doing swim meets and things like that. So I come and I go, you know, because I do have a daughter and she obviously is my first priority, but Julie knows that sometimes I have to come here and work for a few months in a row just to kind of help me get ahead. And Julie gets that maybe because while she doesn't have biological children of her own, Julie is quite the mama bear. Julie's always been more than just like a boss for me. It's just like anytime I've ever need anything, really, it's kind of difficult when you're a single mom at a younger age to make ends meet sometimes. And Julie's always been like, hey, if you ever need any extra money or whatever it is, you just let me know and I'll make sure you have something to do. Julie's generosity extends far beyond flexible scheduling at the bar. I had bought a car once and like a year later, all of a sudden, the transmission was completely blown within a year. Um, but like the warranty was out. I was just in a situation to where uh, like I either had to buy a new car or a new transmission, you know, but I was still paying off the car. And she was like, let me just loan you this money right now. And then you just get me back whenever you can. Like, no stress. Just I know this is really affecting you right now. And we can go from there and handle it later. It just kind of blows my mind how much that she does do and how much she does give back. I mean, I'm not just saying that because I'm her sister. That was Sarah again, Julie's older sister. During Hurricane Harvey, for example, in 2017, Julie and Sarah were roommates. And she was out. I remember my mom calling and saying, like, make Julie stay at home. The streets are flooded. But she would be out there, like, with the back of her truck full of water, driving around, you know. And I was like, Mom, you know I can't control Julie. I mean, for anything, she, she just opens up her doors for more than it just being a club. It's, it's a platform for her to give back. Again, in 2020, when the bar shut down because of COVID. Julie really made sure that every single one of us was taken care of during that whole entire time. You know, and, and that kind of shows you like just how she really cares about us because her entire business was completely shut down for months, months long, you know, and it's like, the daily financial stress and like burden that that put on her and the fact that every single day, every single day she checked in on all of us to make sure that we were okay and we had everything we needed. 
there was not a day that went by that we didn't hear from her. Just some sort of communication, just like, hey, how are you doing today? Of course, during lockdown, Julie was dealing with challenges of her own. At the time, I was really stressed out about what was going to happen, and I had to borrow a lot of money. But Pearl Bar was part of the Lesbian Bar Project's fundraising. If you remember from previous episodes, the Lesbian Bar Project is a campaign to help preserve the remaining lesbian bars in the country. In late 2020, they had started fundraising and allocating money to the bars. But by that time, Julie was doing a lot better financially. Then we did our GoFundMe and our community raised over $40,000 like in two weeks. And then I ended up getting a grant from HRC and Showtime Television. So what does Julie do? So I donated my part back. At the time, I was really concerned. Obviously, Henrietta Hudson's is a staple for all lesbian bars. I mean, a lot of us have gone there. A lot of us love that place. And Cubby Hole, and then all the bars in California, I was worried about them. Around the time the second wave of COVID hit Texas, the Lesbian Bar Project started a second round of fundraising. And that was when I thought was really nervous. So I was part of it the second time. But then by the time they had done all the fundraising, we were doing insanely well. So I donated that part back, too. Because I just think, you know, like, you, we need to all try and help each other. And today? We are doing better than it we ever have, which is crazy. I know. I'm very happy. I've been able to pr- pretty much pay, like, the majority of all the debt I had to borrow from 2020. And it, I'm, I'm very happy about that. Grateful, too. And we saw, at least that Thursday, that Pearl was getting a lot of business. The patio slowly filled up with people sitting around picnic tables and carving into their steaks. Like Eve, who sat alone at a spot up front by the grill. Uh, you were for me at the, in- at the interview, right? Yeah, yeah, Then yeah. put in radio. Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay. Cool. Eve is a pseudonym we're using to protect her identity. I'm afraid because my, I have family in Lebanon. So if they know um, like this, they will tell to my family and neighbor, and neighbor will hate my family. You understand me? So I have to not say. So I live like secret life. A lot of my family is actually from Lebanon as well. Ah, uh, okay. Okay. Yeah, uh-huh. like my, my like, great-grandparents. Uh, ah, uh, yeah, yeah. But you never live there. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. I've always thought about traveling there with my grandfather, or Jiddu in Arabic. But Eve opened my eyes to what it might have been like to live there. For one thing, public acceptance of homosexuality is really low. According to a 2020 Pew Research Center study, 85% of Lebanese people say homosexuality should not be accepted. In my country... They uh, hate the gay, the gay world, and they uh, not respect this, not accept this, because my country is a religious country. So um, in my country, they kill uh, the gay people or lesbian. Eve is referring to uh, honor killings, usually of a woman uh, or girl, who allegedly brought shame or dishonor to their family. While less common in Lebanon today than in some other countries, it does still happen. They're not except this. They kill them. So I have many nightmares, yeah. And I have here, like, black, but I hide. Uh, because at night, I, when I sleep, I remember when I was in my country. 
I feel I am still there. So I wake up like I'm afraid, you know? According to Lebanese law, sexual acts contrary to nature are prohibited. Some Lebanese courts have ruled that same-sex intimacy is not contrary to nature, and thus it shouldn't be prosecuted under the law. One of the first of these cases was tried back in 2017, and it was covered at the time by a BBC News special called Gay, Trans, and Illegal in Lebanon. This is a lawyer involved in the case, Yumna Makhlouf. But what we have is an article in the criminal code, it's the article 534, uh, that uh, criminalizes uh, intercourse against nature. And some judges have interpreted this law as being applicable to homosexual uh, intercourse and homosexual relations. So, so is it not then quite dangerous that it's up to a judge alone to define what natural is? It is, and this is why this text cannot uh, have a place in the criminal code. Can you tell me about the case you were involved in, was it last week? So he essentially said homosexuality is natural. He said it, the term is natural. Is that a precedent? I mean, is that the first time? This is the first decision that states that it's a natural right. It's a big step. But Article 534 still remains on the books. And even though some courts have interpreted otherwise, the law could still be used to target gay people in Lebanon. You know, if I didn't like somebody and I thought that they were gay, could I then just go to the police and you say, can go and, I think that they have been And involved. file what we call uh, an akhbar. They will start investigating and yes, there is a possibility of arresting this person. So you can actually still to this day be sent to jail for being gay? Of course. In of Lebanon? Course. Within the past decade, Lebanese law enforcement was still using an invasive examination to determine whether or not a man was gay. Now, if there are any children listening, I would recommend skipping ahead about one minute, as the following content is graphic. This is Joseph Aoun. He's the coordinator for Hellum, a gay rights organization in Lebanon. So, I mean, what was the anal test? What was the... It's, it's a machine on the form of an egg. The police started using that to prove that you are gay. They penetrate you with a machine that actually sees if you have seizures to prove that you are being... Your privacy and your body rights and everything are being literally raped. And so we did a campaign to appease the impact. I mean, it's still practiced, but very rarely. The Lebanese Medical Board banned this practice back in 2012. But there are still reports of its use, illegally, as recently as 2014. However, in the media... Lebanon is often referred to as a safe haven for gay people, compared to surrounding religious countries in the Middle East. But what does that mean exactly? Here's Joseph Aoun again, speaking on France 24 News. We're still aiming for, you know, uh, a total equality between Lebanese uh, LGBT and other citizens. We're aiming for more, uh, more tolerance, less discrimination in uh, in uh, official uh, depart- departments of the state, in police stations, and uh, and uh, other uh, departments. So, so it's not the best. Uh, hey, that we don't want to give the impression that oh, Lebanon is a haven uh, for LGBTs or it's province town of the Middle East, like it appeared in one of the articles. But, but also, yeah, Lebanon is much more tolerant than its surrounding. But we can only really speak to Eve's experience. And she says 
the environment in Lebanon is a lot worse than the media is showing. Before, I feel upset, I feel sad because I'm well there, because I can't live how I, I want. And I know girls, they married men, and they are lesbian, but they married just for, um, because afraid from family, from society. That's so hard. You live with man. You don't Eve has some family in North Carolina. So about six uh, years I ago, she moved there from Lebanon. But she's still never come out to anyone in her family. So no one knows the main reason she left Lebanon is because she's gay. But if they know what I do, they, they will not uh, let me like this. I don't know what they will do. I think they will uh, not talk to me or they will do, uh, do for me something bad. I'm afraid for till, till them. So I'm not till them. Then, last year, Eve decided to move to Houston. And again, she couldn't be honest with her family. So I told them I want to go to Houston because it's cheap. I want to work. I want to make a new friend. The real reason she wanted to move to Houston was Julie Mabry. She is like sent for me. She learned about Julie and Pearl Bar while still living in North Carolina. She was looking for some sort of lesbian community. Then I try to search on the internet. Then I read uh, about uh, Julie, Julie Mary. She talked in general about uh, lesbian and about the girls, and, and she have bar for this. Then I like it. So I came here to for Julie. As soon as Eve got settled yeah, in I Houston, she came into the bar. Me. So I came here, the first day I came here, I see it's a lesbian bar. Uh, I'm so happy for this. And when I see her, uh, I'm crying. <laughs> yeah, I told her, you, uh, you awesome. And she hugged me and she listened to me. And I told her, I can't believe uh, yesterday I was in bad uh, country. And today I am with you. So she... Uh, she hugged me and she said everything you want. Uh, uh, I'm here. This is home. Uh, this is bar. It's like your home. Yeah. Now Eve is a regular at oh. Pearl Bar. <laughs> I think here is safe for me from everything, from my family, from my work, because my everything not respect the, the gay world, you know. So I feel here safe and this bar, uh, like home, because I think inside uh, the bar, everyone here is real, not fake. And outside, outside, every, everyone fake. And my work, everyone just actor, fake, you know. Uh, my family, my friends, my relatives, they fake, fake. They're not real. But here inside, I think is everyone, it's reality. So I came here every week. So I, uh, I respect Julie because she uh, built place for people like me. So I feel here happy because here is freedom for me. And that's exactly what Julie has always wanted her bar to be for people. The importance of us having like a safe place was was always the idea that I, why I wanted a bar. Like so many bars we visited, it's about so much more than drinking and partying. There's a lot of people that come in and just have like a Topo Chico or a Coke, and they'll sit here for two or three hours and still either by themselves or hang out with their friends because this is still their safe place. 
Julie herself is nine years sober as of this past November. Her relationship to alcohol had gotten pretty unhealthy during her years of bartending and party promoting. That's kind of like the double-edged sword of having a bar because sometimes for me it's hard, you know, when people are drinking too much. But now that Julie owns her bar, she can shape the culture around alcohol and addiction. I will talk to people or they'll come talk to me about it if they need advice. And I've helped quite a few people get sober. A safe space like this, where people don't feel pressured to drink and can even come to Julie for support, is especially needed in the queer community. There's a lot of addiction in amongst the queer community. And I think it's really amazing that my sister and I both have been able to get sober because we both had, you know, a lot of trials in our life. So remember Julie's sister, Sarah. I struggled with addiction from the age of like 18. But her life completely turned around when she got sober around eight years ago. Today, she actually works for the same organization that helped her get clean. I'm actually a licensed chemical dependency counselor intern. And I just Monday, in addition to that, the opportunity became available for me to go to barber school something that I've always wanted to do. And so I started doing that at night. So I work as a LCDC intern during the daytime and I'm going to barber school at night. And you've probably noticed, Sarah still uses she, her pronouns and identifies as a gay woman. Am I completely comfortable in my body the way it looks? No. Do I, would I want a more masculine body? Yes. But I am a female who likes other females and I'm a butch lesbian. That's who I am. This is not to speak to the experience of any other trans people coming out later in life. But that's just been Sarah's journey. All of those years that she didn't have the language or education or exposure to understand her identity, she had to work really hard to accept and love herself as she was. So now at 51, I feel like I don't want to lose that identity that I've fought so hard and stood up for for so long. I don't want to transition into a male. You know what I'm saying? Even though that's probably what would happen if I was 14 today, that now after struggling and fighting for my identity for so long and being who I am, I just feel like staying with the pronoun she and her is where I'm at. But Sarah hasn't given up on becoming more comfortable in her own skin. Next Friday, I'm actually going to um, go see a plastic surgeon about top surgery. So that's that's the main thing I want done, just that, just top surgery. Because that body dysmorphia in my mind is is with that. You know what I'm saying? Like I want a more masculine chest, but I am clearly okay with being a female who likes other females. Now that she's sober, Pearl Bar isn't exactly Sarah's scene anymore. But she and her mom will often come by for steak nights. They both helped Julie renovate back when she was first opening. And of course, they're incredibly proud. Julie's always, even when we were kids, she's like, even in her closet, in her bedroom, she had like all these little stuffed animals and she (laughs) would have a little desk in there and she would have my mom's old checks and she would, you know, always something business, 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 business. But seeing her step into her own element and and open up her own club, it was just like an overwhelming sense of, of, of pride you know, for her. And I'm just being like proud of what she's accomplished. For years, Sarah never knew the role she played in Julie's affinity for lesbian bars. You never think that other people see your struggle. And I didn't know that Julie recognized that or even saw that. Until relatively recently. 
I think it was like the second year that she had Pearl open and then she said it in an interview and I watched the, the, the playback of it. And I was like, what? I never knew, knew that she really saw that struggle, you know, like, and recognized it in, in me. So that's the first time I've heard it like verbalized. And she was like, yeah, you know, that's, that's one of the main reasons why I Pearl open. It's been emotional and touching and kind of strange for Sarah. To think back on the ways that she impacted her sister without ever even realizing. I mean, we like both cried because I never knew that that's what she saw. Like, she saw me not being on guard. She saw me being who I was. Like, she saw me being comfortable in my own skin in, in that environment. Okay, this is how I picture it now. Whenever I heard her say that for the first time, that she was so affected by it, this vision in my head came like she was like a sponge and she was absorbing all of that. And it was forming her to be the person that she is today. Cruising is reported and produced by Rachel Carp, Jen McGinnity, and me, Sarah Gabrielli. Our theme song is by Joey Freeman. If you like cruising, want to support us, and get access to more content, then join our Patreon at patreon.com slash cruisingpod. You can visit our website, cruisingpod.com, or follow us on social media at cruisingpod. Special thanks this week to Julie, Sarah, Paige, and Eve. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.